tonight on Arena. As the Clockwork Orange turns 50, we ask why did Stanley Kubrick give Beethoven and Bach the synthesizer treatment? And Shane Cullen on his iconic work on the hunger strikes, now showing at Emma. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Stanley Kubrick's tale of the psychopathic delinquent Alex Delarge, a clockwork orange, turns fifty this month. Adapted from the Anthony Burgess novel, it tells the disturbing story of Alex, a young sociopath who breaks into people's homes and violently assaults them. Finally, Alex is arrested, sent to prison, where he undergoes conversion therapy, and the court is satisfied that the therapy has worked and releases Alex back into society. Name? Alexander Delarge, sir. Sentence? 14 years, sir. Crime? Murder, sir. What exactly is the treatment here going to be, then? It's quite simple, really. I'm just going to show you some film. Go on! Do me in, you bastard cowards! <laughs> we don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Leave the hell alone! Don't touch it! It's a very important work of art. Violence is a very horrible thing. You felt ill this afternoon because you're getting better. I don't care about the dangers, Father. I just want to be good. I want for the rest of my life to be one act of goodness. Section there from Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange and because of the violence in the film it is almost as controversial today as it was when it was first released back in the 1971. Sometimes it's the controversy uh, the artistry of the film is overlooked because of that controversy like the innovative use of music which we just heard there Rossini's Thieving Magpie Overture. It's the music that we're concentrating on this, uh, this anniversary look back at A Clockwork Orange and with us in studio is Stephen Benedict lecturer at the National Film School Beethoven features quite a lot for mm. sure in, yeah. in, in this so we're, we're kind of looking though I suppose at a mixture of, of criminality and yeah. classical music which don't sound like <laughs> easy bedfellows uh, gang culture yeah. and high culture uh, he's turning everything on his head was it the first time this had been done? Hardly uh, Well strictly speaking no I mean if we were to go back to the very very beginning of cinema you know in the flea pits you would have a, a pianist sitting by a piano hammering away, improvising madly to the images that they're seeing on screen. Mm. And all, almost all the time, the music that they were using and drawing from was classical music. And in, in that, then, that feed, fed into the filmmakers who then started to draw on classical music for the stories. And one of the first instances of a filmmaker who actually chooses a specific piece of music comes from 1915 when, when D.W. Griffith made his notorious US Civil War epic, The Birth of a Nation. In that movie, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, are delivered uh, or portrayed as the heroes of the South. And there's a sequence where they ride into town to rescue the, 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 the white people who are under siege. And what he does is he used specifically Wagner's The Ride of the Valkyrie. Mm. And it is to present the, the Ku Klux Klan as the heroes. Now, Kubrick was using classical music and using Beethoven, but he was not presenting Alex as a hero in any way, shape, or form. The and I suppose the other thing about the, if you think of the, the the birth of a nation situation, then using Wagner while we're in the early part of the twentieth century, Nazism has, yeah. hasn't reared its ugly head yet. But Wagner, that attachment, the association, the association with Nazism, it's supremacy, it's subject of much debate. Obviously, those who agree and those who disagree. But even in nineteen eighteen, that kind of white supremacist type of feel was there. In, okay. 
in the music of Wagner. And we've also got to remember, you know, by the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan were the third largest political party in the United States. That's something that we always seem to overlook. But the thing is, just to come back to your, mm. your initial question, Sean, um, the thing is that it was really, to, what Kubrick did was he t- took the music out of the context and helped redefine it. Now, the first instance of that that I know of for certain is from 1961, an Italian film called Acatone, directed by Pier Paolo Pasolini. And what Pasolini did was that the, the movie Acatone is set in the criminal underworld in Italy. It's a very, very tough film. And there's a sequence where a sex worker, where sex mm. worker is attacked by a number of men. And for the sequence, what Pasolini did, was he, he used Johann Sebastian Bach's The Passion of St. Matthew over the images. And in that way, he was a little bit like what Caravaggio the Renaissance painter was doing because he repeatedly mixed the sacred and the profane. And that's what Pasolini was doing with that sequence as well. And so what the funny thing is that Pasolini himself was an atheist. So he wasn't using the music in a religious sense at all. What yeah. he was doing, he was taking the religion out of the church and putting it onto the streets to impose a reading saying, look, here is a person who's usually cast out by society and she should be protected. Yeah, and, and I suppose that's, some would argue, the story that Bach was telling in yes. The Matthew Passion is exactly the same yes. story, but set in a different context. But classical music and cubic certainly um, no strangers to each other. Most people, if you ask them about the Spack Zarathustra from yeah. Richard Strauss, they say, oh, you mean the theme to 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey. But I think Strauss might have some arguments around that one. Yeah. So he had done this previously and, and there was, it had its violence in that film, but there was a kind of a majestic quality to the way the music was used too. That's right. I mean, he was using it for the ape who discovers mm. that you can use the bone as a tool. Um, but, you know, so there is, an, there is an air and a degree of irony in it. But the thing was, it's not so much the, the use of the music. It's there's a particular recording of music that Kubrick then started to go towards. Mm. Because when he, shortly after he'd finished 2001, he heard an album called Switched On Bach by Wendy Carlos. And what Wendy Carlos had done was she took Bach's classical music and she ran it through a newfangled machine called the Moog synthesizer. She's one of the great pioneers of electronic music. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what she did. She effectively electrified classical music with, with um, through running it through the Moog synthesizer. If you have it, if you've, anyone's heard it, it's really spectacular. Yeah, well, let's listen to what she oh, does. Have yeah, we have the, the Sinfonia to Cantata number 29 in the Wendy Carlos version as used. In, this is used in the... In, no, no, in, no, this, no, oh, this, this is just, just what Kubrick heard. An example. This is yeah. what Kubrick heard and yeah. you can see why he was attracted to it when you hear this. Yeah, just saying, as we're listening there, that sounds like something that could be in a Stanley Kubrick movie because it's precisely <laughs> the style of, of music that he clearly, that spoke to him, the, the music of Wendy Carlos and how she treated Bach. Well, that's it. I think the, the thing about it is it's a great sense of delight when you're listening to her mm. rendering of it. It's a great sense of joy. But the thing was that attracted Kubrick to it was when he approached Wendy Carlos, 
he said, look, we're going to use Beethoven's Ode to Joy, but we're not going to use the traditional recording. And he said, but what I want you to do is I don't want this to be joyful at all. I need it to be dark. I need it to be warped. I need it to be really, really malevolent. And for me, if you listen to what Wendy Carlos then did to Beethoven, it's like there's some sort of, com- there's some sort of virus has r- is running through the computer and it's, it's corrupting yeah. the music. Yeah, so the clip that we have here starts out with a reasonably traditional version of the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth. And then we're going to drift then, in. Then it kind of, Wendy Carlos will take over and do her thing to Beethoven just like she did to Bach in that last recording. So there we go. We move from a, 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 a straightforward version of uh, the Ode to Joy of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the final movement, into that version that Wendy Carlos composed for mm. Stanley Kubrick's yeah. uh, Clockwork Orange. Stephen Bendick speaking to us about the music in Kubrick's at Clockwork Orange. It's, I can't believe it's 50 years old this month, but it is 50 years old this month. Um, when you think of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, it has such a central part in Western European culture. Yeah. I mean, to take that piece of music and play around with it and give it that kind of slightly almost clownish treatment, but that uh, you sinister can quality hear, that a clown you can, can have. almost hear a person dancing in a clownish way to it. Mm. And you're absolutely right. I mean, Beethoven's piece, that particular piece, is such a cornerstone of of Western civilization, and I think that's one of the reasons why people were so offended. Some people were offended. Clearly, the movie the movie is very, very violent. But there are some people who are more offended by what they saw as the desecration of this piece of music, and they seem to misunderstand or seem to have overlooked a huge episode in the twentieth century, in history of the twentieth century, because the Nazis used this. Mm. It was one of Hitler's favorite pieces of music. In actual fact, he had it performed on his fifty third birthday. And and you know you have to feel sorry for a bit of whatever about Wagner and the debate with that might yeah. go on because he was dead at the time of Nazism as yeah. well. Beethoven was well gone at this stage, yeah. and Beethoven had proven himself to be a real hero of the French Revolution. He took Napoleon out as the dedicatee of his third symphony mm-hmm. because he didn't like what he did. That's right. So you know it it was a real misuse of Beethoven's music by Hitler. But then again, I mean, there's there's been, uh, it's depending on which culture or which country you're, you're in at a particular point in the 20th century, because when Germany was reunified, the reunification of mm. Germany in 1989, they played Beethoven. So it, it is, it, it is in, the, in the right hands, it's used correctly. And then it falls into the wrong hands. And I think, you know, the thing for me is what Kubrick did with that is he showed how art can be corrupted. And that's what people, some people were found offense, uh, were offended by. If I can just draw in another example, Sean, you know, when Steven Spielberg went to make Schindler's List, uh, he went one step further than Kubrick because um, there's a sequence that the, the ghetto massacre happens. And the, during the ghetto massacre, a Nazi soldier comes across a, p- a piano and starts to play. And then two soldiers stop on the door and they start to debate, what's he playing? Is that, is that Bach? Is that Mozart? And they're mm. arguing with each other. And what... What's, what Spielberg is doing there, he's actually showing that 
art can be misused to pave over horrors, right? So these these three soldiers are distracted. They're using the art to hide what they're doing. But also the thing for me there is the deeper, harder truth of that sequence is that art can be used, you know, fascism obliterates the function and the very meaning of the music because fascism does not, denies the, the art the moral value. Yeah. And yeah. that, that's the great point in, the, in, in that, in that and scene. And isn't that the whole reason? In, in fact, he's talking about in some ways in this film, we're looking at a breakdown yes. of civilization anyway. So to take one of these kind of pillar stones of Western civilization, Western culture, yeah. and do that to it, kind of making the point of the film. Precisely. I mean, that's what Anthony Burgess was also doing in, in his novel. Yeah. And so Kubrick, what people were offended by was, how can a thug, how can a, a mere hoodlum have the intelligence to understand this piece of music? And so, well, it's accessible to everyone. Everybody. You, you're bringing it quite a step further, though, here in terms of what you're saying about the music, I think, Stephen, because you're going as far as suggesting that some of the rhythms, if I'm, if I'm right. picking up what you're saying correctly here, some of the rhythms of uh, Alex DeLarge's speech even kind of have a musical quality to them. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Burgess did that in the novel because he he created this this new language called Nadzat, which is a sort of a fusion of of colloquialisms mm. and modern English and then Yiddish and there's Russian phrases in there as well. And so, what Kubrick had that great idea is of fusing these ideas of taking Wendy Carlos's score and then putting it to the music and then taking the taking the dialogue. But what he also did, Sean, which I think is really really important, and that's what separates it from so many other filmmakers who decide, hey, we're going to do the Kubrick thing, we're going to take this past classic music and set it to a violent scene is that he would he would shoot in his later films he would shoot the scene to the music he would compose the images and, and arrange the tempo of the sequence to yeah. fit the music as opposed to just throwing it in any other yeah, way because I was asking you when we came to air this evening about um, something I saw online today from Clockwork Orange and I thought was that a trailer but it's specifically a scene the William Tell overture, overture. <laughs> and, you know, the speed of that piece you know everybody knows it but there's almost a picture per note there's a cut per note it's blindingly fast and that's from the film it wasn't a trailer No well in the film he uses it for the menage a trois that Alex involves in with the two young ladies and what Kubrick did is he sped the he sp- he shot at really really high speed, so it's it all you're off to the races with these two women. That's what Alex <laughs> yeah. is doing. But you know there are I mean we've seen so many films and seen heard so many films that use classical music in a completely banal way. I mean look don't get me wrong I love Claire de Lune by Debussy and I love the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. But help me if I have to hear it one more time in a movie. Beethoven's Lacrimosa it's being used. In a, in a way that's so banal, it becomes an emotional trinket. Well, what do you think then of, say, for example, the way that uh, uh, in, in The Godfather, and I asked you about this before we came to it, it's, it's in The Godfather 3, because The Godfather is also 50 years old. This next year is <laughs> it's the first one, yeah. So the third film is, you, you were reminding me, is where Cavalleria Rusticana, the Kleenex ad, is what <laughs> most people remember that tune from. Yeah. They use that during that, you know, the, the opera last is happening. Ha- the last act, the last half And then half there's a huge the shootout during this beautiful music. Yeah, well, and the thing is, Coppola sets it up. He, he validates his use of it because um, Michael's son, Anthony, is an opera singer and he is partaking in a performance of Cavalier Rusticana mm. in Sicily. So, I mean, I know Coppola was sort of orchestrating or manipulating the, the story there to, to facilitate it but he, he was the only really way he could go with the with, to finish the film by bringing it back to Sicily and being operatic about it 
And uh, you've also thought of an Irish example, though, where music is used, but it's kind of, it, it's, well, if I said, if, give me the example of what Pat, what, what um, Neil Jordan did in Pat McCabe's well, yeah, novel, with this, The Butcher this, Boy. What, what, yeah, what Neil Jordan did was really, 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 really difficult. I can't emphasise how difficult it was because he was taking a popular piece of music that many, many people would be much more familiar with because it's modern. And he took Mac the Knife and used it in the opening sequence for um, the, the Butcher, Butcher Boy. Boy. He also took Mona Lisa the yeah. movie, for the for the song, and then took the Crying Game. So what he's doing is, I mean, I'm not saying he's it, it's it, what Kubrick did was easy. It was very very difficult. But what Neil Jordan set himself the task further. of taking a song that people f- consider to be their own because this is my song, mm. and then Neil Jordan sort of turns it on its head. Let's finish with um, with another piece of music then from from um, Clockwork Orange, and this is a uh, parcel, isn't it? Or That's parcel, right. Depending the, on your the funeral march choice. Yeah, so why, why this particular, what does this tell us well, about this, what Kubrick Well, this is actually the opening, he uses this in the opening and he gives, this is given the full Wendy Carlos treatment. Um, and you will hear, I think we're going to begin with the traditional mm. recording and then you're going to drift into what Wendy Carlos did. But Kubrick used it on the opening, opening credits just to introduce you to this very, very dark world. So we just get a sense of the the Wendy Carlos piece towards the the end really of that dark. that when it when it becomes that synthy quality does gives it a, a, a totally darker tone nauseating yeah you know <laughs> what then would you say in terms of in general terms well first of all in terms of Kubrick's own work yeah what did his use of music in Clockwork Orange lead to later on well then his next picture was Barry Lyndon which I actually think is his greatest achievement and then he he you know he uses Handel Saraband for the opening for mm. the the opening credits and then he also uses Schubert's uh, trio for strings beautifully and then you know Tony Scott used it and then um, I think Ridley Scott has used it and um, you know you've got. Other filmmakers like P- uh, Peter Weir, who prefers always to use pre-recorded classical music for his soundtracks as opposed to compose, mm. uh, um, uh, commissioning a new score. So you've got Kubrick continued that on with um, The Shining. And again, he returned to Wendy Carlos to use Berlioz's uh, uh, Symphony Fantastique for the openings. Boom, boom, boom. For the, you know, Jack yes. Torrance's drive up. So there are, Scorsese has then used for Shutter Island. He decided to dispense with an, a, an, uh, an original score and limit himself to pre um, to music that had already been composed. So it's a discipline that filmmakers... Yeah. sort of tie themselves into as an exercise to see whether they can actually do what Stanley did. Yeah, and, and I suppose the other thing that strikes me on the Wendy Carlos front is when you think of the music of Michael Nyman and the like, oh, and the way yeah. he, it's so yes. it's so much the next stage it's on. The, from, the next logical from, step. From, from, yeah. from Wendy Carlos. Yeah. Fascinating. Stephen Benedict speaking to us tonight about the music in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, which turns 50 this month.